On December 23, 1968, the Apollo 8 spacecraft orbited the moon with astronauts James Lovell, who was later part of the Apollo 13 mission, Frank Borman, and Bill Anders. This was the first time humans had reached the moon and orbited it. With an estimated one billion viewers around the world, these three men took this opportunity to acknowledge God as creator and turned reading the first 10 verses of Genesis 1. This was one of the greatest scientific achievements to date and the moon landing that later happened with Apollo 11 still stands today as one of the greatest moments in man's scientific efforts. Yet on this voyage in 1968, the subject of all that was before them, and you may know of this from the famous photo that was taken uh, from that particular voyage known as the Earth Rise photo, but all that was before them on this voyage was an awe and respect for God, the Creator. On their return to Earth, they found that a lady from Dallas had filed a suit against them. Madeline Murray O'Hare, a militant atheist, had collected 28,000 signatures on a lawsuit petition demanding that the astronauts or any other government employee be prohibited from citing scripture while on duty. In response, Americans sent NASA more than two and a half million letters and petitions in support of the Apollo 8 astronauts' actions, and the O'Hare's suit was ultimately dismissed by the Supreme Court. Later, the U.S. Postal Service issued a six-cent stamp featuring the Earthrise photo with the words, in the beginning, in honor of the three astronauts and the day in history when they honored God as creator to the entire world. It's hard to say if this could still happen today. The numbers and the particulars could be reversed. We're living in a society right now that is predominantly secular. And at the heart of this battle is creation versus evolution. So I'd like to speak about some talking points today that have to do with creation and evolution. It's really a survey of sorts. If you've ever uh, taken a college class and it's referred to as a survey, you're really just skimming over the surface and not able to dig too deep. So we consider this some talking points, uh, a survey of, of the material. Now for the audience that I'm speaking to, we're all at different places in our lives, uh, from very young preschool-aged kids to the elderly. Uh, we have children who are in school, college-age students, parents of school-age students, grandparents of school-age students. And so for some of you, this may be a non-issue, meaning you've made your choice and you're committed to it. For you, your issue is to pass it on to others and to teach. For others, they are pressured from all sides. And when I say pressured, there should be a capital P and an exclamation point because they're hit pretty hard in a school setting on this topic. The notion of a creator is considered a silly notion and many embrace the dominant belief of an enlightened scientific world with evolution as its basis. So as we begin, and I want you to consider much of the, of the, the really the first two thirds of the message 
a very long introduction to a couple of scriptures that we'll end with today. I'm hoping by expounding on, a few, on some things when we read those scriptures, there's some things that will jump out to you or be far more meaningful with this groundwork laid beforehand. So first I'd like to give you some important reasons of why we should discuss this, and I'll give you five different ones just to start with. The first one. <clears throat> In this modern era of the church, this was an issue at its founding. In the summer of 1924, Mr. Herbert Armstrong was challenged on two fronts. One was from his wife, Loma, and it had to do with the Sabbath day. The other was from her side of the family, the Dillons, on evolution. Loma's brother, Walter Dillon, his wife, Hertha, sister, Bertha, were all college-educated and worked within education. Cite page 293 from Mr. Armstrong's autobiography, and here he's quoting Hertha. Herbert Armstrong, you are simply ignorant. One is uneducated and ignorant unless he believes in evolution. All educated people now believe in it. You know, this was happening close to 100 years ago when this discussion took place, and it's even gained more traction since then. I found what was on the next page even a more important statement and one I'll reflect on when we close today again. But this was from page 294 in the autobiography. And this is Mr. Armstrong speaking here. It threw me directly into an in-depth research of what is perhaps the most basic of all knowledge, the very starting point in the acquisition of knowledge, the search for the correct concept through which to view all facts. It's a pretty substantial statement that he's making there about this research that he did on which position he should take. Is there a creator or is evolution as his family was pressing? Is this what should be believed by all educated people? Many of you know he did this diligently over the next six months of his life, seven days a week at the Portland Library with his wife having to convince him to come home and go to sleep and get some rest. Secondly, anyone that will be attending an educational institution this fall will probably have to deal with this issue. It is not a casual one. It is not covered within one subject area. It is not emotionally neutral. And it will be treated as fact and in some cases aggressively and with strong coercion. Students will be bombarded with this idea and expected to embrace it, probably at the least prepared moment in their life, having individuals who have degrees and decades of research behind them and someone who's just beginning school is being bombarded with these things. Thirdly, <clears throat> the whole purpose of this bombardment is to cause you to question, to cause someone to doubt. It can create concerns when you have all of this information thrown at you. Uh, years ago at Camp Carter, when we were fielding some questions, there were quite a few that were coming from kids who were wrestling with this issue, and these were, these were pre-college age 
kids. You know, even though the climate within schools is one that we would, at least is purported as one of tolerance, it is predominantly of tolerance of all things non-religious or non-judgmental. Peer pressure can be very heated and pressure in the classroom where the teacher presents evolution as fact can be daunting if you decide to voice objection to this. And you can sometimes stand alone in disagreement to the establishment, and as I mentioned a moment ago, at an age where there are a number of factors that are important to you. Factors like self-confidence, which may be low. Uh, factors of uh, a deeper educational background may not be there as much as is needed. And you're, heading, you're taking this head on with someone who's uh, greatly advanced in those areas. Fourthly, there's a much greater intensity now, both in the scientific world and the public setting. The more extreme evolutionists, the atheists, aggressively are going after non-believers and the religious. You may know of names like Richard Dawkins and others like that. Uh, in fact, I'll quote an article from 2016 from the National Geographic, and it's in regards to the Richard Dawkins Foundation. And the quote from the article goes like this. They, atheists, they want to normalize atheism to the point where it is so common that atheans, atheists no longer need a group to tell them it's okay to believe in atheism or to defend their morals in the face of religious lawmakers. It goes on. We have a stigma that we're combative, that we're arrogant, and that we want to provoke religious people and we're working on that. So in other words, they just want to put a nice face on it, but they're still aggressively going after the issue. As their numbers have grown and as they continue to grow, their confidence and their intensity and their agenda keeps going. We've heard more modern data uh, presented, but this one goes back to 2012 from the Washington Post. But it says there's a, there's a report on global religious identity that shows while Christians and Muslims make up the two largest groups, those with no affiliation, no religion, <clears throat> including atheists and agnostics, are now the third largest religious group in the world. Fifth point I want you to consider. Simply, this is a spiritual battlefield, nothing less. It is a war in the minds of each man, woman, and child over what is real and what is deception. We know who the author of deception, he is the deceiver, he is the liar. And we know from reading the very beginning with Adam and Eve and the serpent that this is the issue. Can you be convinced that something else is real? We have to answer for ourselves, and this is really the basis for our faith. Who is it that defines what's real? Who provides what is real? We could say the truth. What should we act on, and what should we avoid acting on? And who can I trust to deliver this information? Now, to complicate matters, and we know this is really one of the issues at the heart of evolution, which we'll get to a little bit later, 
comes down to human nature. What would I like to do? Uh, can I find a way around God and his expectations? So the battle may look like it's an academic matter over is there a creator or not, uh, issues that have to do with the dinosaurs and when they were and if they were and how, they, how man came to be, um, how much time has gone on through all of this uh, material that we look at. This is just the wedge to create doubt. Then we quickly move on, and we've seen this into much, much more. It has to do with our behavior and what humans really want to do with their time. Now, transition at this point into some important considerations that I'd like you to think about that have to do with creation and evolution and should be things that you consider before you enter into a discussion or research or you even form your opinion on this matter. And I've got three of these points. First one, <clears throat> is the argument really science is bad, religion is good? Is that really the argument? Because if you talk to some people, that's really where, where they believe the issue is. We know that there are some scientists, atheists, who would have it the other way around. They would have religion bad, science good. And really, if you read their backgrounds and their upbringing and some of the things that they cite, there's, there's a bad history of things that have been done in the name of religion. And anybody who wants to go and collect those as proof for religion is bad, there's a long list. There's a long list. We know that there's a false religion and there's a true religion. And we have to consider that in the mix. So again, is the argument science is bad, religion is good? Are all scientists evolutionists? Are they all atheists? Are all scientists the same? Are all creationists the same? Now, our thoughts about these areas can greatly influence how we proceed when we look into creation and evolution. And it can complicate our discussions or our processing of information depending on where you reside on these questions. So a couple sub-points under this first one. <clears throat> Let's talk about the creationists first. Understand that's a very broad term. Just because someone says they're a creationist may not mean that we agree with them. There are many types of creationists. And there are many types of creationists that we would disagree with. It's not a one-size-fits-all label. Now, much of the material, <clears throat> excuse me, much of the material that's generated by creationists is rooted in what we refer to as a young earth perspective, meaning the universe, the earth, the moon, the sun, man, the animals, all of that had to occur within a 6,000-year time period. The whole concept is based upon a theological assumption, which is known in the, in the greater Christian world as the fall of man. And their belief is that evil entered simply with Adam. Didn't exist before, only existed after. So sin, evil, death did not exist prior to this event. 
And so if you run with that thinking, the dinosaurs were evil creatures. They killed one another, they ate one another, and so they have to have existed within this 6,000 years. Uh, my dad went to a Noah's Ark exhibit in Kentucky, and as he was going through in one of the cages of this uh, supposedly accurate-sized model uh, were dinosaurs in, in the cages that were on the ark. Again, it fits in with this young earth perspective. <clears throat> While we share a belief in a creator and can appreciate many aspects of their research, we can differ considerably from a young earth creationist. And many young earth creationists actually set themselves up <clears throat> in a university setting holding a weak position. Because as we begin to talk about the antiquity of the universe, the antiquity of the earth, those students who hold the position that this is a young earth perspective, and that's what Genesis is talking about, come away doubting the book of Genesis as factual. Again, that's the wedge that begins to disarm many other aspects of the Bible. As a church, we, for a long time, and it goes back deep in our, uh, in our church written material, we are, as we refer to, as old earth creationists. We understand Genesis is a recreation, <clears throat> not the absolute beginning of all that's been created. And as such, we can sit in a classroom in a science setting and have no problem with the projected age of the earth being 4.3 billion years old or that the dinosaurs are millions of years old. We just believe the creator did it. Now take a look with me at Genesis chapter 1. <clears throat> Pardon my voice. Genesis chapter 1, we'll read verses 1 and 2. Oftentimes this is used to explain part of our old earth creationist standpoint. And it's referred to as the gap theory. It's also called gap creationism. So we read in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, this would be the absolute beginning, in the true beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then the belief is that there is a gap of time, large gap of time between verses 1 and verse 2. Verse 2 says, And the earth was, or became, without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. <clears throat> and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. I'll read to you a, a quote about the gap theory. The gap theory, also known as ruin reconstruction theory or gap creationism, suggests a time gap equaling millions or perhaps billions of years occurring between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. This theory is one of several old earth creationism views. So the gap theory has come under some criticism in different circles, as you can imagine. It is, after all, referred to as a theory, gap theory. The term was coined in more recent history by Thomas Episcopus in the 15, late 1500s, early 1600s is when he lived, and Thomas Chambers, 
1780 to 1847. And it's criticized because it was believed that that was an invented response to Darwin's evolutionary theory. Problem is, Thomas Episcopus predates Darwin, and the scripture predates all of them. No matter, no matter what you label this, and people can get caught up in this term, the gap theory, no matter what it's labeled, the scripture's been there a very long time. And verse 2 describes a condition of the earth that it is in ruin, not something God produces. He is not the author of confusion. And we could say a lot about this topic, but that would be the, the simple things that could be said about verse 2. We know that there's an antiquity to the creation of the angels that predate all of this. We know that Satan's turn and him being cast down to the earth was a very old event. And likely he could be the author of this condition that is described in verse 2. But from that point onward, God is putting things together so that man can be placed on the earth and grow from there and his plan fulfilled. Second subpoint under this first one, we've talked about the creationists a brief moment. Let's talk about science. We're not at odds with science. We are at odds with evolution and atheists. Science is a mix of disciplines, medical, agricultural, electronic, computing, transportation, and so on. Science put us into outer space. It put us on the moon. It's put landing instruments on Mars and out to the edge of the galaxy. Science has for those, and there are many scientists who believe in a creator, these explorations and discoveries have actually magnified the creator and his creation and created greater awe and even more proof to those who believe in God as a creator. Now the science that we have a problem with has also found a way via evolution to remove moral and ethical barriers. And so we don't only, don't only object with the there's no creator, we object strongly to the way they live and they've simply found an excuse, a go around to God's law and his authority. And while this affects personal behavior, we also so know it affects research. We have medical fields, agricultural fields, genetic fields. All of these things are now open. There is no moral restriction on those anymore. In other words, if a plant evolved and it has a weakness, we can play with that and make it better. There's no understanding that God made it as it is, and it is the way it is for a reason. It's, no, it's, it's evolved, and so we, because we're highly intelligent and highly involved ourselves, we can go in and we can, we can change things. We can improve the situation, and you know that has some, that has some ramifications. National Geographic article from 2015, The War on Science. I found this one interesting. It's an article that expresses concern that people have and, and their doubt in science. So here are some of the subtitles that went with that article. Climate change does not exist. Evolution never happened. Uh, the moon landing was fake. Vaccinations can lead to autism. And genetically modified food is evil. What a mix of things there. You know, each of those are not equal on an equal plane. From, verse, uh, from 
page 41 of that article, they state, science will find the truth. It may get it wrong the first time and maybe the second time, but ultimately it will find the truth. And then skipping to page 47, believing in evolution is just a description about you. I'm not sure exactly what to do with that statement. Uh, it's not an account of how you reason. Maybe, except that evolution actually happened. Biology is incomprehensible without it. Being right does matter, and the science tribe has a long record of getting things right in the end. Modern science is built on things it got right. You know, that article mixes a number of different issues, conspiracy theories, internet paranoia, idolatrous error, religious beliefs, beneficial science, questionable science, evolutionary science. It's a good illustration of one of the tactics that Satan uses, and that is confusion. He is the author of confusion. And when you jumble things like this, it makes it very difficult for human beings to unravel it and determine truth from error. God did make us inquisitive. He made us inventors. He made us researchers. We just need to use it without error. So as we finish up with this first piece, all creationists are not equal and all science is not evolutionary. So take care in gathering information and forming opinions. Read and consider each critically and always keep God and his word as your foundation. Secondly, as you read and as you research and as you discuss with others and as you gather information, be careful in defining the terms, the words, and the concepts that are used in the research or in the discussion. Understand your own use of words and how others use words. Meanings can vary and it can be a very confusing discussion when someone believes that the word means this and the other person believes the word means something else. You know, when it comes to evolution, it can, it can be more difficult than you might expect. The scientific community does not agree on a definition, but they are deeply con concerned over the confusion over the definition in the general public. This is from a Talk Origins archive website that provides evolutionists with articles and research to help defend against, against creationism. And in this article it says, what is, the title is, What is Evolution? Most non-scientists seem to be quite confused about precise definitions of biological evolution. Such confusion is due in large part to an inability of scientists to communicate effectively to the general public and also to confusion among scientists themselves about how to define such an important term. Scientists such as myself must share the blame for the lack of public understanding in science. We need to work harder to convey the correct information. So there's confusion even within the scientific world on how these terms are used. Evolution just simply comes from a Latin word which means unrolling, opening out, or unfolding. If I just use one definition, 
Let me read it to you for evolution. One definition. The process by which different kinds of organisms are thought to have developed and diversified from earlier forms during the history of the earth. Now, I appreciated some of the honesty in this definition. Key phrase there, thought to have. A process by which different kinds of living organisms are thought to have developed. It is a theory after all. Now, scientists will bristle at this sort of comment, but it is a theory and it is thought to have. We don't have definitive proof of these things. As the definition goes on, they diversified from earlier forms. Okay, so where do these earlier forms come from? You may have heard of some of these entertaining theories of where these earlier forms come from. Probably the most common that you've heard of is the primordial soup idea that was uh, hit by an electric spark. In other words, lightning generated certain key elements necessary for life. You've got the deep sea vents theory where you have heat and it gathered certain elements together around these deep sea vents and then that started life. You have the chilly start idea where you've got frozen layers that protected elements until they were needed and the sun melted and allowed these elements to emerge. And then probably one of the more humorous ones is called panspermia, which is life building blocks came from another planet. In other words, these were hitchhikers on meteors that landed on the earth. Well, that continues to roll out more questions, doesn't it? Where did the earth come from? If you've seen any theories, it's had all these rocks moving around in space and they collided and created gravitational pull and it kept building and building and building. Where did the rocks come from? Where did the universe come from? I've only said those things to simply point out that we quickly departed from the realm of science. Science, as you may have heard before, is observable, observable phenomenon that can be replicated. There's a difference between science and the origins of life, how life began. Darwin's theory, as you may know, starts with the first cell and goes from there. For some scientists, the origins of life are considered outside of the realm of science and better left to philosophers and theologians. I appreciated years ago watching uh, a movie by Ben Stein called Expelled, and he interviewed a gentleman who I found to be one of the more articulate and intelligent individuals I've, I've heard speak in the academic world. His name was Dr. David Berlinski. He's got a PhD in philosophy from Princeton, postdoctoral work from Columbia. He's taught at Stanford and other big schools. So he has, he has a lot of research backing and a lot of time in education. But he's an opponent to uh, evolution, takes them on. Quote from, from that particular film, Darwin's theory is not precise enough to be tested. And what he's saying here is, in other words, this is not science. And he goes on to say, this goes on to say about him, a critic of the theory of evolution, Berlinski refuses to theorize about the origins of life. Because again, as was stated, that's outside of the realm of science. His argument is all of these scientists are running around discussing evolution, 
the beginnings of life, and they can't prove any of these things. Where did it all start? Where did it all come from? And they still can't find any transitional species. How did this thing become this thing? We have no proof of that in the fossil record. We've never witnessed that happening. So again, observable phenomenon that can be replicated, we, we don't have that. That's science. Discussing the origins of life, that should be left to something else. Third of the three considerations, don't get drawn into a debate with the devout evolutionist. It's a discussion that's going to be fraught with trouble. Think of these things under this particular topic. There's a difference between debate and argument and a question of interest and honest inquiry. We need to discern the difference. My dad has a quote on his desk that he's re uh, relayed to me often. A man convinced against himself is of the same opinion still. You're not going to make any ground in an argument or a debate. If someone is truly interested in what you believed, freely share with them. But if it's a contentious situation, leave it alone. If you take on someone who's a devout evolutionist, you will be inundated with data, academic analysis of said data. There are terms, definitions, uh, abundance of research, presentations at conferences, books. Uh, when you talk to some of these individuals, they can use a term or a word in their entire volumes and presentation history that go behind that word that you may or may not be familiar with. What's really important is that you're convinced of your position and you don't have to prove to them the merit of your stance. The biggest issue though in this particular section, we fundamentally differ on the ground rules, the playing field, and the arena. Science is the realm of the five senses. These are needed for observable phenomenon. These are the basis for what they consider as proof. God's proofs begin with the senses, which he put there in the spirit of man, but go beyond that and involve faith and have his spirit as a necessary element. Now, this has been a long expositional intro and two scriptures. So if you'll turn with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 2. <clears throat> Before I read this, I'll just simply say, it has not been my interest in oversimplifying this area. It is massive and could be covered in tons of presentations. My effort was to give you the pertinent points and I think that last point that I gave you, that really it does come down to faith, our faith in God as the creator. But we also know that our young people that are going into college and are being inundated with this, not only are they diminished, meaning their professors have far more experience and educational background, they're also newer to this concept of faith. And so there's 
there's backing, there's considerations, there's discussions, there's support that's needed within families, within the church community to help these individuals and to see the truth. What is real? Who is the one who provides what is real? Who is the one who provides the truth? And at a beginning point, you have to do that in faith because you don't have the history to see it play out. But a lot of God's instructions are, if you do this, you will see blessing down the road. It may not make any sense to you right now, but if you practice it 10 years, 20 years later, you'll look back and go, I'm glad I did that. It worked out perfectly, just like it was said it was going to work out. All right, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard. You know, he's just saying the senses can't perceive this. I has not seen nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. You know, we talked about science as the realm of the five, five senses. This passage is beginning to break into the concept that we need something more than the five senses. A primary position of evolutionists is a contempt for God. So how could any of these individuals receive the kind of instruction that we're going to continue to look at here in 1 Corinthians 2 and wisdom who, they wouldn't even consider it wisdom from one who is hated by them. 1 Corinthians 2.10, but God has revealed them to us by his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. For who among men knows the things of a man except the spirit of man within him? So also no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. This is necessary if we're going to understand the things of God. He's simply saying there is a barrier to knowing. Animals cannot know the things of man. They do not have the spirit of man. And, and unless God grants it, man cannot know the things of God without his spirit. Continuing in verse 12. But we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit from God, so that we might know the things that are freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the spirit, the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. The things of the spirit of God cannot be conveyed to the natural man. It's perceived as foolishness to them. I would take it even a step further that when you try to convey these to them, they see you as foolish as well. Anything that you try to say to an evolutionist who is blocked and you're trying to convey things that are of the Spirit of God will only end up in a perception that you are foolish and what you're trying to deliver is foolish. Very much like what Paul ran into when he was talking to the Greeks. They did not understand. They could not perceive it. Start turning with me to Romans 1. And we'll end with Romans 1. 
Here we'll see that there's another layer to consider. Romans 1 lets us know that God made it possible for all of mankind to know that there's a creator. A combination of the five senses and the spirit of man, just those two things, which all created men and women have, make it possible for anyone to know that he exists and he rules. Let's read Romans 1, starting in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because the thing which may be known of God is clearly revealed to them, for God revealed it to them. For the unseen things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being realized by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, for them to be without excuse." I'd like to read from Barnes' notes on verse 19 on this statement, that which may be known of God. Barnes says this, that which is knowable concerning God. The expression implies that there may be many things concerning God which cannot be known, but there are also many things which may be ascertained, such as his existence and many of his attributes, his power and his wisdom and justice. That was to show that so much might be known of God as to prove that they had no excuse for their crimes or sins, or that God would be just in punishing them for their deeds. For this it was needful only that his existence and his justice, or his determination to punish sin, should be known. And this the apostle affirms, was known among them and had been from the creation of the world. They knew enough to prove that they had no excuse for their sins. Let's continue reading a little bit further in Romans 1, verse 21 now. Because knowing God, they did not glorify him as God, neither were thankful. They became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanliness through the lust of their heart to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. For they changed the truth of God into a lie and they worshiped and served the created thing more than the creator who was blessed forever. Now, as we go and read verses 26 through 32, does this not describe and is this not prophetic of the conditions that we see around us in abundance? Verse 26, for this cause, God gave them to dishonorable affections. For even their women changed the natural use into that which is against nature. 
and likewise also men leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust towards one another, males with males, working out shamefulness and receiving in themselves the recompense which was fitting for their error. And even as they did not think fit to have God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do things not right. I won't read all of the phrases here, but as you read through verses 29 through 31, describing in many different words what was just discussed, we jump to verse 32, who knowing the righteous order of God, that those practicing such things are worthy of death, not only to them, but who have pleasure in practicing them. Those who reject God have blinded themselves from the truth. A truth that, as Romans 1.19 said, they're capable of seeing. Just the minimum. There is a God. He is there. He did create things. And he has the right to expect something from you. They consider themselves wise and they've gone forward to cause harm to themselves and to others. So as we conclude with this first message, we've only just scratched the surface. It was not my purpose to be complete in my presentation of the material. We've only scratched the surface of what's out there on this topic. That's part of what it makes it so overwhelming for us to consider all of these bits and pieces and to cut through all of these arguments and all of this material and go right to the heart of the matter. Is evolution really the issue anyway? There's a lot of smoke and dust thrown up in the air as a distraction. And all the data generated by the evolutionists, the fossil record, the young earth creationists, the radiocarbon dating and any other dating method, changes in species, theistic evolution, and on and on and on and on it goes. When you cut through it all, what is important is a universal acknowledgement of God as a creator. I'll reflect back. I won't go back and read it, but remember that quote I read you from Mr. Armstrong. Getting this right is the basis for all knowledge and facts that you will build on top of it. God is the creator. And this is where it gets sticky. He has the right as the creator to require something of each of us. We know that when the thinking of this evolutionistic world, if there's no God, the Bible is not his word. Events and people are myth and part biased history. Faith is foolishness and naivete. Morality is purely arbitrary and at the whim of an ever-shifting cultural norm. Justice is a movable bar based on public opinion. The promise of blessing and punishments are hollow. Sin is just manipulation, and on and on it goes. When God is out of the way, we can do what we want to do. That's the point of where this is going. So if you're entering school this fall, keep this in your mind. If you're in the middle of an education, keep this in your mind. If you haven't proven this to yourself, keep this in your mind. For many who have this there, share it with those who need to hear it. God is our creator, and he does have expectations for all of us.